This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. It is not easy being a teenager, particularly in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian. And a lot of our teenagers have questions about life that we need to be prepared to answer. My next guest, Dr. Gregory Jantz and his son, have put together a great resource that outlines some of the most asked questions that teens have, enabling both teenagers and their parents to navigate the changes leading up to adulthood. Dr. Jantz is the author of 28 best-selling books, hosts a national radio program, and is recognized as a leading authority on family relationships. His new book, which we're going to discuss, is called 40 Answers for Teens Top Questions. And it's great to have you here, Dr. Jantz. How are you? I'm alive and well today. This is a fun one, talking about teenagers. <laughs> well, I've got three, so you're really going to help me today. This is going to help me a lot when I get some of your wisdom on teenagers and how to deal with them. Looks like you had an expert help you compile these questions and critique <laughs> you a little bit, too. Oh, you know, um, there's so many things, you know, that 12 to 17-year-old range, uh, there's so many changes, and we add the culture of technology in there, in the digital world, and there's so many things facing our kids, and kids are growing up, male or female, they're growing up a lot faster uh, than ever before, and so I had an idea, because... is to sit down with my son, and it took us a, a really about two years to do this, oh, wow. uh, and to, to work through the most common questions, and, and really, uh, we want to be a resource, you know, for parents, but kids have questions. They do. They do. And they don't always ask mom and dad necessarily. They might be posing those questions to friends who might not, not always be giving them the right answers. Well, isn't it true? And, and sometimes we don't know what to say. And other times uh, we may ignore some very critical questions. That's true. That's right. Yeah. What do you think uh, when you talk about teenagers growing up very, very fast today, pr- primarily because they're exposed to so much more than previous generations were through the Internet and media? You know, what are some of your concerns about what teenagers are facing right now, especially in a post-Christian world? Well, you know, one of the things is the if we just look at the digital world, uh, kids are growing up maybe with two adolescents. There's the digital adolescents, who they present online, and then there's real life. Hmm. And so there's like two different identities for a lot of kids. I know that sounds odd, but man, there's the online digital world that parents many times do not understand the, the depth and the complexities of that. And uh, then there's growing up in the in the real world, and sometimes those two identities are real different. Yeah. And as we know, you know, the two questions that a teenager has is, who am I, and where do I fit in? Yes. Who am I? Where do I fit in? And so, you know, if you ask even a, a kid, when a boy, you go, hey, when do you think you become a man? You know, kids don't know. 
um, when, when do I grow up? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. And you're so right about that. The digital me and the real life me could be completely different. It's why you see different avatars for kids, social media accounts and selfies where they're, you know, preening and looking more, yeah. you know, adult than they would in real life. And I think that speaks to the insecurities in many ways that we all face when we're that age. And, and you know, what about adolescence, just looking at it in a broad way and what you can expect a teenager to go through during that period of time. What sorts of things during adolescence do you think are really important to answer when a teen is asking questions during that time period? You know, they need to know um, that they have value and they're um, respected. And, and what I mean by that is a sense of identity and, and just honor for who they are. Kids are looking, they're going to test boundaries, they're going to test through language, through words, uh, or through behaviors. So we need to really look at, um, they really, uh, they're going to test, and we've got to, you know, we've got to have technology boundaries for them, and, and we may have a technology agreement in the home and family, but we've got to provide the guardrails uh, in this testing phase, Good. <laughs> so, yeah. so they don't go too far off. Now, some parents, they're already really concerned about their kids. They feel like they're already on the wrong road. And um, we know that sometimes they go down that road uh, before they make a U-turn or get over on the right lane. And so we're not to lose hope for our teens. Uh, And I know there's a lot of experimentation. Some states, you know, pot is legal. I live in one. And, you know, a kid even underage will go, well, it's not a problem. It's legal. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet is age nine. So a lot of things are happening really early. Yes, they are. Before a lot of kids can handle it. That's the real scary part, you know, especially when you're talking about exposure to things like pornography. But, you know, going back to the original idea of a kid wanting to find out who he is or she is, where they fit in. How do you answer that question? If a kid says to you, how do I figure out who I am, Dr. Jantz? I'm 15 years old or I'm 14 years old. And my parents treat me one way and my friends treat me another way and my teachers treat me another way. How do you help a kid find out who he or she happens to be? Well, remember, there's sometimes for some, they're really not listening to the parent as far as the main influence. Right. And I think one of the greatest things you can do for a kid in that um, kind of that zone is we need to find uh, mentors and others that are speaking into their life. Uh, we know uh, male mentors for, for boys um, can be very, very powerful. Our kids, they're looking for a hero. They're looking for something to follow. And we don't have a lot of good things uh, in the media and in typical music. There's not a lot of good things to follow. Right. Um, and so, but they're looking for that. And they're looking for a relationship. Uh, and so it's okay. In fact, you know, we've got to set them up to have other relationships that are going to speak into their lives. And we, we, obviously, we're going to be praying along the way, uh, but don't be surprised if for a period of time it feels like they're really not listening to us. Right. Always keep the bridge, though, open. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, it's easy to get angry and shut down, and, and then they walk away, and they close the door, slam the door of their bedroom, and they put those earbuds in, <laughs> and you don't see them for two days. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, I understand the frustrations. 
um, but keep the bridge open. That's good. That's good advice. Right. Because they do go through phases and they do come out of those phases. You just have to be a foundation for them, knowing you know that they know you're there when they come out of that phase. What about the attitudes that kids have toward parents? You know, wanting to have more control or being able to make more rules for themselves than their parents say they're ready to make. How do you answer that question? Oh, yes. And, you know, sometimes we're, we're, we want to say, oh, I remember when I was your age. I want, you know, and we do that thing. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Not, not, not always helpful. Um, we do want to gradually give them more responsibility. And it is true, um, as they're able to successfully do some small things. And by the way, uh, chores, duties, responsibilities around the household, it really is where all this begins. Mm. Um, so where they become, and they need, they need to have a sense, really, that they are contributing. Uh, they may complain, but they need a sense that they are making a contribution. And uh, we really, uh, despite who the members of our family are, if it's single-parent family, we've still got to teach our kids to make a contribution and, and treat it. We're a team. We call ourselves Team Jants. And uh, so we reference... Every team member matters. It's good, and everybody's going to going to have a contribution. I like that. You know, there could be there could be whining and moaning, and, and you know that's okay. Uh, we have a little rule. Um, you know, if you're whining, complaining, or argumentative, you can argue with yourself because we're not going to participate. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I know. I, I'm so with you on that. And, and yeah, it points out the importance of things like chores and expectations. And you're going to contribute to the household because you're a member of the family. I'm not going to spoon yeah. feed you. I mean, those things, I'm very much a big believer in that. And, and yes, you do get the grumbling. I grumbled when my parents made me do it. But if you don't learn how to take responsibility in a small way as a teenager, you're never going to be ready to handle big responsibility when you get to be an adult. And uh, so many good questions. We're going to go to a break. We'll come back with Dr. Gregory Jantz, his book, 40 Answers for Teens Top Questions. Stay with us. The Ministry of Preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that horse soldier sound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Dr. Gregory Jantz. He and his son have written a book, 40 Answers for Teens, Top Questions. If you have teenagers, then you know why those questions are sometimes asked, but you might not know how to answer them. And we've been talking specifically before the break, Dr. Jantz, about parents and interacting with parents. Now, what about relationships with peers, specifically guy-girl things? You know, this is the period of time usually where most kids begin to get interested in the opposite sex and they want to be able to maybe go out and do this or that, go to the mall or what have you, depending on the age. But what about the questions that teenagers ask about you know, romantic relationships and beginning to date. Yeah. Well, I think that's really important to keep that a very, very open discussion and one that's kind of organic and that it's always evolving. So I have a a son who's graduating a senior in high school, and I have an eighth-grade boy. Uh, Eighth graders just recently discovered girls. Uh, The senior has a girlfriend. So I'm in the middle of this. Yeah, you are. (laughs) Yes, you are. And... But we we talk about it, and we talk about even you know what 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 is it that you're interested in, and what's appropriate, and what are safeguards we we put. We still okay. uh, you know have a situation where it, it's double dating and and where you're going, and we still have really good or firm time boundaries when you're home. We have a saying, you know, nothing good happens after midnight. Right. Uh, so there's there's time boundaries. And boundaries around who you're going to be with, but we talk about we do talk about the whys. You know, as, as kids get older, you, you certainly uh, you talk about it. You talk about um, what could be a setup for for trouble, um, and you know, you talk about what if you go out and, and somebody has alcohol. What do you do? So we, we're trying to be proactive by pre-playing some situations. Good. That's good. You have to do that because they will get into those situations, various forms of those situations, and it is the parent's job to prepare. Now, for example, you have a, a question that you address in the book pertaining to why should you wait until marriage to have yes. uh, sex, which is uh, critical for everybody to talk to their kids about. This is, you know, obviously we have lots and lots of problems, whether it's abortion or, you know, children born out of wedlock, all sorts of sexually transmitted diseases. How do you approach that when you're sitting down your son or you're talking? to maybe some other teenager who says, well, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? What do you say? Well, we just, then we would just openly talk about it. Um, and, and we would talk about, 
I don't start with the place where, you know, uh, the Bible says this. Uh, you know, we'll integrate that in, but what we want to do is really have a, a good conversation, and one where there's not shame, and one where there's not, well, why are you asking that? Yeah. Um, or you know what's right to do. Right. Uh, so be careful when it comes to sexuality and sex questions that we don't shame them. And, you know, some of it might be a little embarrassing and challenging or difficult for us to answer, but we're just going to jump right in, talk about it, and we're going to talk about, um, you know, really what it means to wait, what's appropriate boundaries in, in dating, yeah. what's appropriate physical boundaries, and and just keep talking about it. But here, ask them, too, what they think. Um so, you know, sometimes we get into a little bit of a preachy mode with them, but really dive in, well, what do you think is, is, is right? And what do you think, why waiting and, and, and what to sex, what does this really mean? Um, let them say some things about what they're thinking. Um, so keep it a very, very open discussion. Um, you know, it's okay, um, you know, Talk about pornography. Now, you don't do that all the time. <laughs> you know, right, it's like, because right. then you don't want to overemphasize it. But, to, you know, those are delicate uh, topics. Um, but uh, it's okay to say, how are you doing? Uh, it's okay to ask, you know, there's a lot going on in the digital media. Um, have you ever had anybody send you an inappropriate picture? Or, um, and just make those topics of discussion. Yeah. Yeah, to talk about them. Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, when you were talking earlier about what kids find online and inappropriate material, pornography and so forth, there are a lot of Christians who will talk about the need to have, you know, uh, things online that you you can block that stuff. You you don't even the filters that you can put on your computer and so forth. But it's a different thing when you have a smartphone and and digitally you can go a lot of places. um, Mom and dad can't be. How do you address that issue of protecting kids from the effects of pornography? Well, uh, we're even going to talk about sexing, sex texting, um, and we're going to talk to them about um, pornography even as an addiction. Um, but we're also going to say, you know, pretty natural to have some curiosities um, and uh, what can happen with that. Um, we're even going to talk about how do I... How do I resist and deal with temptations? Uh, when am I when am I most tempted? And uh, what do I do if I find I have you know, really strong attraction towards somebody, and, and even in my thought life or fantasy? So, and it's also this is also where uh, mentors and others can enter into the picture. Um, there reaches a uh, a point with a parent that uh, the kid may be somewhat resistant. But boy, can I talk to can I talk to a mentor or somebody I really trust and just lay out these questions? It's a really good thing to have somebody else involved in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and you also have some questions in your book pertaining to basic, I would call them basic questions of doing the right thing. For example, a teen might ask, how do I say I was wrong? Or how do I forgive my parents? These are kind of the basic things in life to be able to apologize, to be able to forgive. How do you talk to a teen about why that's necessary for the sake, not only of your relationship with other people, but also that it's the right thing to do as a Christian to forgive people and and to say you're sorry. So, well, we talk about um, wanting to have a 
good and healthy relationships and even asking the question, what, what's a healthy relationship? What do you, what do you believe? Um, you know, even right down to what do you look for in a guy or girl? What's, what's healthy? Right. Um, um, how do you know if you have healthy friends? And uh, who are the five closest that are influencing your son or daughter in their mm-hmm. life? And uh, we've had to help uh, our boys kind of make some friend adjustments. But, you know, the more you say, hey, I don't want you hanging around with so-and-so, they're no good, that's not going to work. Yeah. But you talk about what makes a good friend and how, how to be a good friend. Uh, what about forgiveness? Uh, what happens if we don't learn how to manage anger? And what do you do when you're angry? Um, you know, are you le- uh, saying inappropriate things? Are Because we want to have anger without injuring anybody else, including ourselves. So we talk about, uh, you know, what is a healthy relationship? Yeah. And those are fun discussions to have with, with your kid. Um, you know, we talk about online relationships. So online in the digital world, uh, you step, you bypass all the normal steps of uh, of intimacy or closeness. Because online, you know, you send a couple texts or in social media, you've had two contacts, and oh yeah, we're really close friends. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Sure, you are, and <laughs> you've never met. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. There's instant intimacy in many ways because people yeah. sometimes feel more, uh, you know, comfortable being able to reveal their thoughts to someone they're not seeing and someone they're not looking at. Yeah. Now, when you do your friend adjustments, just out of curiosity, as you mentioned before, whenever you talk to a teenager, don't hang around that person. That, that can backfire. But when you, when you are finding it necessary as a parent to push for a friend adjustment, how do you do that? What's the best way to do that? You can talk about healthy relationships, but if there's one relationship in particular that's bad, how do you talk to your teenager to get that teenager to see that it's bad? Well, we talk about friendship qualities. We talk about what's trust. Uh, we talk to about um, the whole area of how do you choose a friend? Oh, that's good. Um, who are you sitting next to in school? Who are you at lunch with? Um, and we we also talk about how to bring how to talk to maybe some kids that you maybe wouldn't normally talk to, or maybe even feel a little intimidated. Who who would you like to get to know? Hmm. Who do you ha- admire that maybe you're not talking to? Uh, we have a thing where our youngest boys always wanted to bring uh, friends over, and for a while it was you know just bringing the same same crew over. Right. And uh, we began to hey, I want you to invite somebody who's never been over, um, who at school that. Um, that you know, and so start inviting each time one additional, quote, new friend. So, and so that we use that as an avenue to talk about uh, good friends, uh, influence. Uh, we even talk about how do people, um, how do you feel when you're around them? Hmm. So, Right. Do they, do they make you feel worse? Do they encourage you to do bad yeah. things? Those sorts of things. Yes. Well, and finally, you know, you, you have sections, a section there where you have a number of questions about what about God and what about church and how can God help me? What would you say to a teenager about the necessity of having God in your life as you are growing up and to not neglect thinking about God just because you're young? You know, um, they really learn this through uh, probably some 
parental routines. We do a thing where, where you know, sometimes it's, it's a challenge, but where we're, we're at, you know, pray with them each night. Um, individually, usually it is now with their ages. But um, we talk about how we see God working in our lives. So at a dinner table discussion, one of the traditions that we have is, how did you see God at work today in your life? Right. Um, just getting them to think that way, teaching them about gratitude uh, in our prayers, thanking God for his goodness to us and, and, show, and teach them gratitude. That is so good and so much good in this book. It's called 40 Answers for Teens, Top Questions. Dr. Gregory Jantz joining us, and it was great to have you, Dr. Jantz. Thank you so much. Good to be with you today. All right. Take care. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3 tells elders to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. What does it mean to be a shepherd, particularly in the context of making disciples? We're going to talk about that today with Dr. Larry Osborne, senior pastor at North Coast Church in Vista, California. And today we'll be discussing his book, Lead Like a Shepherd, The Secret to Leading Well. And Larry, it's wonderful to welcome you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. You tie together leadership with making disciples. And I'm wondering how those things coincide when you're approaching this from a ministry viewpoint. Well, I think one big problem we have today is that uh, we forget that there are two rails that the local church and Church Universal run on, and they are leadership development and discipleship. And we sometimes morph them into one, and the highest rung on the discipleship ladder becomes uh, becoming a leader. And when that happens, uh, the train falls over because it was made to run on two rails, not be a monorail. Yeah. So a major starting point for me is to understand the difference between discipleship which is helping everybody become more obedient, and leadership development, which is finding those who have a leadership gift or calling and helping them learn what servant leadership looks like. Yeah, well, now you think about some of the verses in Scripture about this, where Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. The Lord had a lot to say about being a servant and yet being a leader. And sometimes Christians say, how do you do both simultaneously? What do you say to that? Well, I would say that leadership is all about putting the needs and interests of others as more important than your own. And at the end of the day, and people got to listen closely to this, it's a form of manipulation. Uh, that's normally a very pejorative word. But when I go to the chiropractor to be manipulated, the chiropractor manipulates me for my good, not his good. 
And uh, that's really what a leader does. They step back and they say, how do I shape a a person, push a person, uh, uh, acquiesce to their weaknesses and limitations? So it's all about helping them become what they do not yet realize they are. Right. And to be a better version of themselves. Yeah. Now, when you talk about being a shepherd, of course, John 10 talks a lot about being a shepherd and the good shepherd is Jesus himself. How should we understand that term? Well, I think a shepherd is simply one who takes it upon themselves to uh, be responsible for the care and the well-being of the sheep. And so it's a, pre- it's a pretty broad term, and I think for anybody that's in any form of spiritual leadership, there's a shepherding aspect to it. In fact, when Peter wrote uh, to the elders, uh, he was writing to people who were leading house churches. So yeah, right. they were uh, essentially much more like a small group Bible study leader uh, than what we think of today, where we have larger organizations and just a small select few who fit into those categories. Yes. Now, the house church of, of Peter's day obviously was a, a much different ball of wax than what we have today in some of our churches that are so huge. What would you yeah. say are some of the challenges then for pastors, especially those who have you know, lots and lots of people coming to the church every week? Obviously, we have to have individual Christians doing the work of ministry. It's not all on the pastor, but functionally, how How is discipleship accomplished within the local church? Well, discipleship is always about helping people take the next step of obedience. So the newest Christian to the longest term Christian always has a next step of obedience. And when Jesus talked about the Great Commission, it was going to all the world, making Mathetes followers, uh, baptizing them, and then teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Right. And so when I look at it uh, as, as the pastor of a larger church, it really hasn't changed from the days we were just a handful of people. That I'm looking at those folks and saying, how do I help each of the individuals take their next step of obedience, which isn't always in lockstep. Uh, even in a, a small house church, you had people at different stages. So one next step of obedience might be to be a a better husband or a better wife or better in the workplace. And another person might be getting rid of a besetting sin that just has them crippled. Uh, There's all of these different things. So at the end of the day, it's just how do I help you become more obedient? Uh, I like to say you can lead a horse to water. You can salt the oats, but you can't stick his head in the water. At least you won't do it twice. <laughs> right. And, and that's what leadership is. You can't, you can't dictate the outcome, but you can ask, did I salt the oats? Did I lead the horse to water? Or better, did I prepare the horse uh, for battle? After that, yeah. it's out of our hands. Well, as a pastor, would you say that discipleship is the most important thing that you're engaged in? Or would you say there are other duties, particularly for a pastor, that have to be done alongside discipleship? In other words, where does it fit into the bigger picture of ministry as a priority? I think at the end of the day, everything must fall under the umbrella of discipleship, or I need to ask myself why I'm doing it. Now, there might be some things that are ancillary, that they they set the stage for it, they make it easier later on, they prepare the soil. Uh, But if it doesn't help people become better followers of Jesus Christ, then my question is always, well, why am I doing it? Right. Even, even things like community service, which our church is incredibly involved in. We average three service projects a day in our community. But that is tilling the ground for evangelism. It's creating a tilt for people who hear the word Christian and have negative thoughts. So even our community service, our, our, our helping the downtrodden, it's showing the love of God with no strings attached. But at the end of the day, I'm always asking, 
does this help move the ball further down the field to see people come to Jesus and then become more obedient? Right. One of the things you mentioned in your book is the challenge of biblical illiteracy. We have seen a lot of these statistics (laughs) come forward and they're pathetic. I mean, I think I can say that pretty openly. They're pathetic when you talk about churchgoers in America and how little time they spend engaged with their Bibles, reading them or studying them or memorizing them. How much of a challenge does that pose to you as a pastor and other pastors because that's just such a basic part of being a Christian is you ought to be reading your Bible. Well, in, there is actually a good side to that that people often don't think of. And that is, if I'm only reaching Christians and only helping them grow deeper in their walk, then I presume upon a bunch of knowledge. But if I'm going to reach people who don't know Jesus, one of the things that can get in the way is that every time I'm uh, bringing a message, I'm bringing it with the presumption that people know a lot about the Bible. Hmm. That causes those who are window shopping to go, well, I guess I don't belong here. (laughs) So I've actually tried to take that negative and jujitsu it into a positive. uh, So that though every sermon we ever preach here is aimed at Christians, we start with the assumption that 20% of the room has never opened a Bible before. And so what explanations and what things might I say different if I had that large group there as a guest listening in, not aiming at them, but including them. Right. Do you do things during the course of your ministry to encourage more Bible reading, more Bible study? How do you handle that? Well, one of the things we do, and this is a description, not a prescription for everybody else, but we don't put verses up on a screen unless it's a, a verse where we're showing you to circle or underline something in your Bible. Uh, And even there, now we're telling people, treat it like a life textbook. Uh, It's okay to mark it up. But other than that, I learned long ago that if everything's up on the screen, it won't be long until no one brings a Bible. And then the next step is every new Christian thinks that wisdom comes from the guru on the stage, not the book that he's talking about and from. Yeah, that's good. So, So that's a way to get people to bring their Bibles to church then. Totally. Plus, we tell them always, our teaching team, hey, you, will, you want to underline this word. You want to start, write this in the margin. If you've got a digital uh, Bible, then do this to it. And, and they're just subtle uh, assumptions that you're treating it as a life textbook. I, I find I have more success subtly acting as if all of you treat it as a life textbook than ranting on them for not treating it as a life textbook. Yes, right. So if you're standing up there berating your flock, that doesn't always go well in the long run. (laughs) Right, right. You know, it's so interesting because you get into what you call the Peter principles. I was quoting at the outset, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, talking about shepherding the flock of God among you. You talk about some of these principles, and the first principle that you mention is thinking like a shepherd. Now, I want to get into that to really help some of those in the audience who are part of the pastoral uh, calling to be able to think like a shepherd. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Larry Osborne, his book, Lead Like a Shepherd. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Back in a moment.
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League, International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for being here. Dr. Larry Osborne is also with us. He is a senior pastor at North Coast Church in Vista, California, and author of Lead Like a Shepherd, The Secret to Leading Well. And we're talking about discipleship and Bible literacy and the Peter Principles, which I mentioned, Larry, before we went to the break. The first exhortation that you mentioned here is thinking like a shepherd. How do you help pastors think like shepherds? What does that entail? Well, first of all, we've got to understand how a shepherd thinks, and then we've got to look at Scripture to see how Jesus seemed to think, what his value system was, and I love the 23rd Psalm where you find the same thing. And uh, at the uh, conclusion, you will always discover that a, a shepherd realizes it's all about the sheep. A yes. hired hand says it's all about me. And mm-hmm. to me, that's one of the major distinctions, that if I'm really functioning as a shepherd, I'm not always asking what's in it for me. Self-care is important, but self-care is not self-centered. I can't just ask, well, uh, am am I feeling the rewards that I want? Is this congregation responding as I would hope? I've got to ask the question, what do they need? And that would go all the way down to somebody shepherding a a Sunday school class. So often, uh, we stay only as long as we're getting more out of it than we're putting into it. That's not how a shepherd thinks. Right. Now, now when you're doing that, for example, if you're teaching Sunday school and say you're teaching second graders or something like that, and you're getting frustrated because the little darlings just won't sit still. They don't really seem to care about what you're teaching. <laughs> how do you, and not that I've, that ever happens, I say as a former Sunday school teacher, but how do you encourage a Sunday school teacher to, for example, take the long view on what you're doing? 
Well, again, I, it's looking to Jesus and saying, am I doing this for him and his kingdom, or am I doing this for what I get out of it in the short term? It's amazing to me in the marketplace, uh, all the things that we will do for a boss who gives us a paycheck, <laughs> and then how quickly we are to bail on things Jesus asks us to do because we're not getting the reward we want right now. Right. <laughs> I true. worked in retail for a while, and the old customer's always right, caused me to... Uh, put up with a whole lot of things I wouldn't have done for free. Yes. <laughs> uh, I sure hope that I could treat those who don't respond as I want them to the same way I did when I was in the marketplace. Yeah, right. Uh, because I'm doing it for a, a much greater reward and for the king of kings, not just the boss. What have you found to be some of the biggest disappointments or the biggest challenges in in doing discipleship and trying to lead people to that next step of obedience? What have been some common themes that you've observed? I think one of the things that constantly frustrates me, and I have to just turn back to Jesus and go, well, that's what he said we're, uh, we're like, is, is our tendency to see the whole world as if we're the center of the universe. Um, the, the times that we fight and devour one another over methods of ministry, not values of ministry, um, those are the things that I think are most uh, discouraging. You know, when somebody's caught up in sin, well, I, I understand the slavery that sin does to our life. But when people are quoting their Bible and fighting and devouring one another, <laughs> that, that's that's the one I just have the always the hardest time with. Yeah, that's hard. And there are a lot of disappointments, as you mentioned, and you give some advice on dealing with disappointments. There are many men who are dropping out of the ministry. I mean, we see some of these statistics on this issue, too, where they are burning out or they're just so discouraged they can't deal with it anymore. So they're not, you know, they're not staying the distance, not going the distance in ministry. What do we do about that? Well, first of all, we have to redefine success and failure and get back to success being faithfulness, not necessarily massive growth. Yeah. And I say that as a pastor of one of the larger churches in our country. I get that. But what a lot of people don't know is for the first three years that I was at North Coast Church, we grew by one person. <laughs> That's a third of person a year. Yeah. And uh, I was just as faithful then when the fruit was not very much as I have been when thousands of people come. And I think a lot of discouragement comes because we have something to prove and someone to impress or maybe a father wound in the past or, or something that causes us to say, uh, I'm being treated like the Apostle Paul was and like Jesus was, but that's unfair and that's wrong. How can that be? I'm going to bail out. Yeah. It's like, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. That's what Jesus said. Would be like. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And and yet, uh, from pastors I've spoken to, and I know you know this is the case as well, they're very much mindful of the fact that if I have a small church, maybe I'm a failure, which is ridiculous because the size of the church does not indicate whether or not you're a faithful pastor. How do you get people who are worried about that sort of thing to feel encouraged and to focus on their faithfulness to the Lord and to the sheep rather than on how big their churches are necessarily? Well, I always try to drive them back to scripture and say, let's take a little deep dive and see what it was like to be Jeremiah. <laughs> let's take a deep dive and see what it was like to be Joseph during most of his life. Yes. Let's take a deep dive in the Apostle Paul, who at one point said, every single person has abandoned me, and I'm here all by myself in this Roman prison. Uh, but we forget that, and we think of the conferences, and we think of the books, and we use that as our measuring stick instead of Scripture. 
which is ironic because most pastors I know see themselves as Bible teachers. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You get back to those basic verses and you'll remember what your Bible actually says on those things. Right. When you talk about the uh, another one of these exhortations from Peter, serving with enthusiasm, talk about that a little bit and what that ought to be in a pastor's life. Well, I think one of the things we have to realize is that uh, we don't have to lead. Uh, whenever the top rung on the discipleship ladder is leadership and the ultimate top rung is vocational ministry, we've bought a lie from the pit. Hmm. And so the, the, I always just tell people, if you really hate everything about leadership, quit leading. Hmm. Uh, the, <laughs> Jesus said, if anyone wants to sit at my right or left hand, not everyone should. He told Timothy uh, that if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, not make sure everyone aspires to that. So the first part of um, serving with enthusiasm is the realization that you don't have to serve in a leadership role. Jesus will love you just as much. Yeah. And sometimes we need more people in the marketplace uh, who are living an A Christian life than people who are doing B professional ministry. Yeah. Right, right. Well, it's not a career in the sense of some of the other careers you could choose. I mean, it really is a calling to do what you're doing. Yeah, Yeah. and often our calling is not so much a calling to lead from Jesus, but this idea, well, I'm really passionate about his kingdom, so therefore I must be in a professional role. Hmm. And I'm saying, you could leave it. I could leave it tomorrow. Here's what would never change. My calling is to teach the Bible and to disciple people. Yes, right. So if I were to step aside from my vocational professional ministry today, that wouldn't change my calling. He didn't call me to professionalism. Right. He called me to teach and to disciple. Oh, I could, I could do that in all kinds of places. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. What do you do about complaining? You talk about the no complaining rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I always tell people if they don't want to uh, pick up poop, don't don't get a dog. Right. <laughs> uh, and, And if you don't want to be taken advantage of and used, get out of leadership, because by definition, that's what servant leadership is. Hmm. Uh, So it's I I sometimes have the privilege of talking to business leaders and I tell them the same thing I talk to pastors. Uh, I say, don't whine that no one else thinks like an owner because they aren't owners. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's your job. And so you do your job and and you help them along uh, the way. Uh, That's good. Yeah, that's good. I, I also liked what you had to say about bearing fruit, because this is such an important thing. We're, we're always wanting to see the fruit of our labors. And you point out, we want an avalanche, but God most often shows up as a glacier. And I said guilty. <laughs> I think we yeah. could all say that. What about the importance of patience and waiting for the Lord to show the fruit, which may not come as quickly as we would like? Yeah, and the pattern in most of life is it doesn't come that quickly. Those are the people that we put up on a stage. And and in some of that, I've been fortunate in my own life. And, and we act as if we created it instead of realizing, oh, we're like somebody who won the lottery. We just we're fortunate in God's grace and mercy. Because as a whole, the pattern of life is we greatly overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what God can do in five. That's uh, good. That's good. Jesus is is the three-mile-an-hour Jesus. I mean, there were no motor scooters, cars, subways. He walked, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. uh, that's really the pace of most of life and most of ministry, is at three miles an hour. 
we read the book of Acts in 30 minutes and forget it took 32 years. That's right. Yeah, great point. I know, and I think what it gets back to is when you are a shepherd, your primary concern ought to be your sheep. And if you are focused on your sheep and on their good, on their discipleship, and on what the Lord has called you to do, then it really does take your focus off yourself, which seems to be one of the main things you're advising is really have your heart and your eyes in the right place when you're trying to be a pastor and a shepherd. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Well, the name of the book is Lead Like a Shepherd, The Secret to Leading Well. Dr. Larry Osborne joining us. Larry, it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Well, thank you. I'm glad I could appreciate it. Well, thank you. God bless. Thanks for joining us here on Janet Mefford today. We really appreciate your tuning in. God bless you, and we will see you next time.